0: Well, so we, we, we come to the end of this year. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is the last Sunday of 2020. And, and for many of us, many of you can't wait for a new year. Uh, so, so many look back and say, this has been a terrible year. They have been, there have been many challenging things. Uh, and so in one sense, I thought, hey, what a great time to, to teach on the life of someone who died, who was strangled and burned alive for having an English Bible, because as, as bad as we think it is, you can walk out of here thankful that, that that's not what happened to you. So, so you have every reason to be encouraged when you leave this morning. But honestly, on a more serious note, I, I wanted us to end the year thinking about God's faithfulness in the past. I mean, nowadays, there's this, this craze, and I know I'm not going to look at you, but I know several in our church family, they, they are infatuated with, with the ancestry, with finding out who they came from and, and who their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and what continent they came from. And so this morning, what, what I kind of want to do is, is, so as, as, as Christians, our, our history goes way back, uh, but, but as English-speaking Christians, I, I want us to look at someone who uh, is really the, the father of English Protestantism in many ways. And so we're going to look at, this morning's going to be a little different. It's going to be a Christian biography. I don't know if you remember last year, two years ago, we looked at the life of Lottie Moon as an aim to encourage you with the faithfulness of a woman that God used mightily in foreign missions to China. Well, this morning I want us to look at William Tyndale And so even as we're singing, uh, you know, we'll read Revelation 5. And then we sang, hopefully you recognize those words were directly from Revelation 5. And so Scripture has been the the, the kind of leading up the the, the, the on-ramp to this this moment in our corporate gatherings when normally we'll open Scripture and I'll expound from Scripture. Well, that's not going to happen this morning. I feel like I've let you down because we're not going to be looking at an inspired text this morning. Uh, But but we are going to have, hopefully, an inspired text. Message, Okay, so, so we are going to look at the life of William Tyndale, and, and just so you know, in, in case any of you, uh, and, and I have in the back of my mind Gene Felberg, who would say, well, what, what was the Bible passage you used? Um, so the Bible passage, or, or the biblical precedent for something like this, uh, is Hebrews 11, uh, so with, with the Hall of Faith, so the author of Hebrews, he recounts generation after generation the faith of all God's people and how their faith led them to act. Uh, and then later, actually, in, in Hebrews 13, the, the author says, remember your leaders and remember their faith and imitate them. And, and so there's this pattern of, of the Christian faith is, is caught by example. Uh, and so I, I, think it's, I think there is validity in looking at the life of faithful Christians in the past. And so we're going to look at William Tyndale. Um, and I, I want you to just recognize uh, the privilege that we have here uh, simply in owning legally owning copies of God's word. I mean, I, I could probably take a, a survey and each household has probably, I, I'd say at least five to 10 copies of the Bible in your house. Now, they probably stay on the shelves, that's okay. Um, but the, the fact that we have them in our possession and we're not afraid of them, we're not being uh, hunted down for having them, the, the fact that we can own our Bibles, the fact that we can read our Bibles, the fact that we can study it, that we can simply understand or make sense of, of what verses in the Bible say these are all things that those living in the time of William Tyndale could not do. I mean, I thought about the, the truths that we were just singing. Hopefully, as we're singing, is he worthy? Your, your heart is, your affections are, are warmed because you, you know Jesus is worthy. You know that his blood was shed and that he's, he's ascended and he's ruling and reigning. And as you think about that, hopefully your affections are, are, are warmed and you think, yes, he's worthy. Well, that's because at some point in your life, you learned what the Bible says, whether it's from a Sunday school teacher, an RA leader, or a parent, or a grandparent, whoever it is, the scriptures have been taught to you, and, and you rejoice in them, because you, you've, they've come in through your brain, and, and through your heart, and your understanding, and, and you are, you're illuminated, and your life is lived in light of these great truths. Well, these things couldn't happen among those living in the time of William Tyndale. I mean, I thought about, on Christmas night, uh, Susanna one of her Christmas presents was a Bible. She wanted a Bible. And so on Christmas night, as, as she's going to bed, she said, Daddy, I want to read my Bible. And it's already 9.30, and I'm ready to, to go to bed. But, but what parent tells their daughter, we're not going to read your Bible before you go to bed? Um, even if they're trying to, to manipulate, take advantage of us, we often will say, okay, let's do it. And so I, I had been reading about Tyndale and reading about the, the role of, of the Bible being translated in English, and I just couldn't help but think of God's kindness that I could sit in a, a house with a six-year-old daughter who just had a new Bible who was reading the English verses that were a translation of the original Greek that, that Ma- Matthew wrote so long ago. So she's sitting reading, and she's understanding. She's saying, here, how, what does this mean? How does this apply? And so I, I was thinking about how, 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 what a blessing we have, but I also was convicted at of how often I take God's word for granted. How many days go by where, th- where, where I could take it or leave it? And I don't think I'm alone. And so, so heading into this next year, I want us, myself included, us as, as, as this local church body of believers, I want us to love God's word more. I mean, I think that's true of every, I know that's true of every person here that you can grow in your love for God. And my prayer is that the life of William Tyndale would be used towards that end. So let me, let me pray for us and then we will look at the life of William Tyndale. So, so let, let's pray. Father, I am thankful for your word, and so we confess that we do take it for granted, that we don't meditate on it, that we don't study it, that we often forget it and act as though you have not revealed yourself to us and given us marching orders, given us commands and and worked mighty deeds on our behalf and and sent your son and and filled our hearts with your spirit. And so we confess that, that we have neglected your special revelation and so, yes, you would forgive us, and I ask specifically that as we look at the life of our brother William Tyndale, that you would encourage us, and that we would, as a result of his faithfulness in his life, love your word and in turn you more. And so, use this time towards that end. I pray in Christ's name, Amen. Well, so, so I put the picture of Tyndale up. That's—it's it's a big picture. If that's creepy, I'm sorry. It's—he's going to be looking at you the whole whole sermon. Uh, but but the, the outline is going to be just three simple points. We're going to look at his context, so the context into which William Tyndale lived and was born and, and, and did his, lived his life. We're going to look second at his, his life and work, so that's going to be the biographical section. And then thirdly, we'll look at his lasting legacy, or we'll look at lessons. What, what can we learn um, from William Tyndale? So first, we'll start with his context. So, so to understand the context into which he was planted and flourished, it's helpful to know a little bit about the history, specifically the history of the Bible and more specifically the, the history of the English Bible. And so, so to go all the way back, if you think about the, the, the Bible that, that we have, it, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they were originally written in, in mainly two languages. There's Hebrew and there's Greek. Okay, So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. And so you think about Moses writing the Pentateuch, he's writing in Hebrew, and there's scrolls that, that have the Hebrew written it on, on, on these scrolls that, that are passed down. And so the, the, the Torah, the, the Israelites that are going to synagogue, there's readings from the scrolls, the temple there, Josiah finds the law, this, this is the Hebrew. And then as the Apostle Paul, or, or Luke, or John, as you're reading the New Testament, it's written in Greek. Okay, So those are the two languages, that the, 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 the original languages of the scriptures. This is the, the means that God designed to, to reveal himself to humanity through the languages of Hebrew and Greek. And so that's how the scriptures are, are passed down. And so, so that, that's the, the beginning. Now, now, not long after that, in, in the New Testament times, there in the early centuries, there was something called the Septuagint, And so what happened with the Septuagint is because Greek was the main language during the New Testament times, the Septuagint was basically uh, the endeavor to take the Old Testament from Hebrew and translate it into Greek. And so the Septuagint is simply the Greek Bible, Old and New Testaments. Okay, so that's, that's the Septuagint. So that's the first kind of work of translation to make it accessible in the New Testament times. Okay, and so sometimes when you, when you read the New Testament, the author quotes something, then you look back at your Hebrew Old Testament and say, wait a minute, that's worded different, that's different. Oftentimes it's because they're, they're quoting from the Septuagint that they have. Okay, So, so the, the Greek Bible, complete Bible, is the Septuagint. So the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek and put into um, a, a one Greek Bible. Well, that, that, the, ne- the next kind of stop in, in understanding the, the context was in the late 4th century, in, in 382, there's a man named Jerome, St. Jerome he's known as, and he's commissioned by the Pope to translate. It starts with the four Gospels, and so, so Jerome is tasked with translating the four Gospels into Latin. So, so Latin, in the fourth century, Latin is, is the language of, of, of conquering kingdoms, and so this is what, what everything is written in. It's Latin, and so Jerome is going to translate the four Gospels. He starts with the four Gospels, but, but in time he translates most every book of the Bible into Latin, Okay, so now we have a book, it's not the Septuagint Greek anymore, but now we have a Latin Bible. And that's known as the Vulgate. The Vulgate, and that was translated mostly by Jerome. And this Bible became the official Bible of the the Holy Roman Catholic Church. So the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. And so for over a thousand years that would follow from Jerome's time, the Vulgate was the most common, really the only version of the Bible, and so most people for for that thousand years, the only version of the Bible they knew was the, the Latin Vulgate. And so most people so, so Latin was the language of the scholars, of, of, of the intellectuals. And so most people had, they couldn't even access the Bible. It was in Latin. And so they would go to their masses, they'd go to their priests, and the scriptures would be read in Latin, and the the the, the services would be the sermons would be preached in Latin. And so people they they just they just went and they listened to things they couldn't understand. And that, that was the, the religious life, the sum of the religious life for many. That was the, the, the Bible in that time. And so the Vulgate was, in the time of, of Tyndale, was the, the commonly accepted Bible. Now Tyndale was born in England, and in England about 100 years before him, there's a man named John Wycliffe. So maybe you've heard of Wycliffe. Wycliffe is, is a, a well-known figure in Christian history. He was an enemy of the Roman Catholic Church and, and Wycliffe and a group of his followers known as Lollards. So maybe you've heard of the Lollards, maybe you remember in, in class or school learning. But, but the, the, t- Wycliffe attempted to get the Bible into English. Okay, he had a, a similar conviction that Tyndale had, that, that people needed the Bible in their own language. And so what, what, what Wycliffe and the Lollards, they partially succeeded because what they did is they took the, took the Latin Vulgate, and they hand-wrote translations from Latin into English, okay. And so what they would handwrite them, and then they they would they would publish them. They would give them out, okay. And so the, it was it was partially successful because number one, it was from the Latin. And so when Jerome went from the Greek and the Hebrew into Latin, he missed a lot. But but then to go from Latin to English, Wycliffe and his translations, it, it was all, in, in many parts it was un- understandable. And illegible, el, in illegible at places also, and so they partially succeeded. So the first English translations were from Wycliffe and the Lollards, um, but they they were Wycliffe was was killed by the church or by the state, um, and his his followers kind of went into hiding. But they were the forerunners of the Reformation, and so Wycliffe and his followers um, they they are. Examples of the dangers of having the Bible in the common language, and so as as people are reading even these clunky wooden translations from Wycliffe, they're they're realizing, wait a minute, the, what this is not what our priest is saying, this is not what the Pope is saying. there's tension here, and so that's dangerous for the Church. And so in response, the Catholic Church kind of doubles down on the prevention of English translations of the Bible. And so I mean, this this is fascinating. This is sad, but in 1401 parliaments so is the ruling body in England. They passed a law that, that enables the, the punishment for heresy to be burning alive. And so if, if, you were, if you were condemned as a heretic, which basically if you taught anything that was opposed to the, the, the official teaching of the church, you could face death by burning Okay, so, so many people were burned at the stake, maybe you've heard that phrase, but for being a heretic. So that's, that's in 1401, that's passed. So the, 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 the church can do that. They condemn people, they hand, and, uh, hand them over to the state, the state burns them. So the church doesn't kill anyone, they just condemn them and hand them over to the church who then kills. Okay, well then in 1408, just seven years later, the constitutions of Oxford were created. And this is, this is the, the thing that really affects the, the context of Tyndale. And so the constitutions of Oxford are, are these, this statute, and I'm going to read what it says, part of what it says. And this is, again, this is coming from the, the Roman Catholic Church. Quote, it is a dangerous thing, as witnesseth, blessed St. Jerome, to translate the text of the Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. Here's why. For in the translation, the same sense is not always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter by his own authority translate any text of the scripture into English or any other tongue, and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. Okay, so so the the church says no one can have an English Bible, no part of the English Bible, and that is a law that is punishable by death, right? So so, so here are these two laws that that are in place, and this is the context of William Tyndale. So you, you hear of stories of, of one there's one young man who, who there is a, a record of a, I think he's a, a musician who, who is recording this, but, but he sees a young man burned alive for possessing a copy of the Lord's Prayer. And so he has the Lord's Prayer in English. If he has it in Latin, no problem, but because it's English, he's killed. Or there's this group in, in a town called Coventry, and there's seven people who are burned for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. And so again, this is the context into which William Tyndale is, is, is planted. This is the, the context of England and the, the state of the Roman church. And so as Tyndale steps on the scene, England was unique among other nations of the world as a country without a version of the Bible printed in its own language. So those rules are unique to England. And so in, in Germany, so, so remember, these are in the early 1400s. Well, in Germany, there, there's a German New Testament that's, that's published and printed and widely, widely distributed in Germany in, the 14, in 1466, France in 1474, Italy in 1471, Spain in 1478, Czech language New Testament in, 15, in 1475, and there's a Dutch New Testament in 1477. And all those nations, all those languages, there are New Testaments in those languages in those countries. And so England misses out because of these laws. They don't. They don't progress with the rest of the world, with, with, the, with the progress of God's word. England, in this sense, missed an opportunity. This is highlighted by the fact that this is what drove Tindale. but there's a very basic need of ordinary Christians to know the Bible and to know what it says in their own tongue. And so by, the, by 1520, that had been supplied often generations earlier in every European country except for England. Okay, and so, so this is the context into which Lu, or, or Tyndale is, is steps on the stage. And so remember, even in all those translations, though they are translated in those languages, they are still working from the Vulgate. Okay, so, so they're still wooden, they're still clunky, they, they're still not really easy to read and understand, but they're at least in the common vernacular, the, the common tongue which is better than nothing, but, but it's far from the original Greek and Hebrew, which leads to the, our, our next, and this is our last landmark event before we get to the life of Tyndale, uh, but, but this last landmark event was 1516 and the publication or the printing of the first Greek New Testament. So so there's, there's printed, there's mass-produced a Greek New Testament by a man named Erasmus. He was a great Dutch philosopher, theologian, humanist, and Erasmus publishes the first Greek New Testament. So, so Martin Luther in Germany is going to eat this up, and he's going to start studying, and it's going, and it's like a, a rapid fire uh, that, that, that spreads. And what's fascinating, I found this fascinating, is that Erasmus, his, his main goal was not to print a Greek New Testament. His main goal, remember the Vulgate, is the common Bible. He says, I'm going to, and he, he was brilliant. Erasmus was brilliant, but he wants everyone to know He's going to correct all the errors of the Latin Vulgate. And so he, what he wants to do is he prints, he, he publishes his translation of Latin, but just so that people would know that he knows what he's doing, he's like, I'm going to put the Greek New Testament on a column beside my Latin so that people who can follow can check my work. And so his aim was to have the, the Latin corrected and the final version that, that, was, that was perfect. And in so doing, he publishes the Greek New Testament. And this was the first time that the Greek New Testament had ever been printed. Not written, but printed. And one author, so this author writes, it is no exaggeration to say that it set fire to Europe. Luther translated into his famous German version of 1522, and in a few years there appeared translations from the Greek into most European vernaculars. And so you have the Greek New Testament that is now being translated. And these were, this author says, the true basis of the popular Reformation. And so the, 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 the Bible comes to the ordinary people. And so the New Testament was being made available in the native languages from the original, which is significant development and started turning the tide in favor of the ordinary Christian having the Bible in his or her own vernacular, which we stand far downstream from here today. And so this set the stage, this Greek New Testament set the stage for Tyndale to begin the process of translating the Bible into the English language which, as we'll see, was still illegal at the time and led to many dangers for Tyndale. And so I want to look at the life of Tyndale. But let me read, so so in all of his... um his, his translations. He wrote this prefaces to all the books of the Bible except for Acts and Revelation. He didn't want to tackle those with an introduction. But it, later, as we'll see, one of his prefaces to when he he translates the 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 Pentateuch. But notice what he says about why he set out to translate. I think this this is from the voice of Tindale, and I think it gives you a good picture. And so he's talking about the the the, the religious leaders. He said a thousand books they would rather have be rather be put forth against their abominable doings and doctrine than that the scripture should come to light For as long as they may keep that down, talking about scripture, they will so darken the right way with the mist of their sophistry and so tangle them that either rebuke or despise their abominations with arguments of philosophy and with worldly similitudes and apparent reasons for natural wisdom and with resting the scripture unto their own purpose, clean contrary unto the process, order, and meaning of the text. And so delude them into descanting upon it with allegories and amaze them, expounding it in many senses before the unlearned lay people." which thing only moved me to translate the New Testament because I had perceived by experience how that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scripture were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue that they might see the process, order, and meaning of the text. And so that's why there is, this is I had perceived by experience, it was impossible to establish the lay people, the, the normal Person in any truth except the scriptures are laid plain before their eyes. Unless you see it and read it and understand it, you will never be established in any truth, is what Tyndale says. So he sets out to translate the New Testament into the common tongue. Okay, so, so that, that's his life goal. Let's look at his life and his work. Okay, so, so here we'll get to the, 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 the events of his life. He was born in a small town a rural town called gloucestershire which is in england uh, not much is known about his childhood it was 1494 when he was born 1494 so you remember in 1516 is the 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 publishing of the the Erasmus New Testament. But so 1494, he's, he's born in a rural town. He's born into a wealthy family of, of merchants and landowners. So they would have, would have been involved in, in the, the rulership of the town there. So he is well-to-do. He is wealthy. And, and this is why we don't know much about his childhood, but we know he went to Oxford, which was a college there, a university there in England, in the town of Oxford. And he went there when he was 12 years old to study. Okay? And, and he was there Oxford for 10 years And so he would have learned, he received a Bachelor of Arts from Oxford and he studied things like grammar and arithmetic and geometry and astronomy and music theory and rhetoric and logic and philosophy. All these things would have been studied by Tyndale there in Oxford in the early 1500s. And after he received his BA, his Bachelor of Arts, he stayed longer and received a Master of Arts. And so he was there at Oxford for for 10 years studying and learning. And after he finished his master of arts, he left Oxford as a highly reputable and trained linguist from the well-respected Oxford University. This was like the Harvard of London or of England. So he was, he had gone to the, the, the most well-known university and he had, he had, he had learned greatly and he had, he had established himself as one to be respected. He was, he had a mind that, that people recognized was gifted, In fact, one biographer says that William Tyndale was a most remarkable scholar and linguist whose eight languages include skill in Greek and Hebrew far above the ordinary for an Englishman of the time. Okay, so he knew eight languages. Eight languages, and it's even said of Tyndale that that whatever of the other seven, so so English was his native language, so he knew seven other ones, and it said that whatever of the seven languages he was speaking, the hearer, in, in hearing him talk, would suppose him to be speaking his native tongue. So, so may, may, maybe you, like me, have been through a few years of Spanish, and, and so you, you, talk, you see someone and you think, oh, they, they're speaking Spanish, let me try. You are like, hola, como estas? And it's like, okay, they're, they're patient, and they're like, okay. Well, Tyndale had mastered eight, seven other languages in such a way that, that he could communicate freely, so people couldn't tell oh wait are are you from that country and so so it just shows his remarkable natural gifting it was clear he was naturally gifted in his ability to understand and translate languages something that would play a significant role in his entire life and so after oxford in 1516 he would go to another university which was cambridge which was, was lesser known and it was it was more uh, it was younger than oxford but but this was the rival the intellectual rival in england to to Oxford, so he goes to Cambridge. And so as he's at Cambridge, things start to, to work themselves. Uh, his life starts to take shape. Um so remember the, by the time he gets there, the, the Greek New Testament is being published. That Luther is is setting Germany on fire with his with his anti-Catholic teachings and writings. And and so here in, in Cambridge, there's this young group of of intellectuals, these learners who are who are reading everything that came from Luther. They're studying their, their Greek New Testament. And and this group uh, begins forming that the, the this this group be, they they become the catalyst for the Reformation in Protestant England. Okay, and so they meet at this place, this pub called the White Horse Inn. Okay, and, and this this pub was was so filled with beer and Luther that they called it Little Germany. Okay, so so all of these these young men who who were studying and learning and, and they were eating up all this this Reformation. Uh, theology and, and these, these writings, they're meeting together, talking and arguing. And some, some of the names, you may not be familiar with them, but, but maybe you are. Some of them men like Robert Barnes and Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. So Ridley and Latimer, maybe you've heard, they, they were burned at the stake together later. Um, Miles Coverdale, who would play a role in, in translations of the English Bible after Tyndale. Thomas Cranmer was Archbishop of Canterbury later and, and was influential in, in kind of shifting England towards a more Protestant direction. Thomas Bilney and William Tyndale. And so the discussions among these men, this group at the White Horse Inn, would become the kindling for the English Reformation. And so it is here, as Tyndale is studying and reading his, his Greek New Testament, he's encountering these Reformation teachings, that, that Tyndale develops a deep commitment to the core truths of Protestantism, of this Reformation that, that's brewing. And so Luther, Luther was extremely influential on Tyndale. But, but more than that, just the doctrines of Luther, the doctrines of the, the, the New Testament, of the scriptures were even more influential in, in shaping the life of Tyndale. And so he, he, one of his first books was called The Parable of the Wicked Mammon, which is just a, a treatise on the core Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone. And, and so he's influenced by, by Luther in this Reformation, and he begins shaping his life in accordance with what he's learning and, and what he's seeing and so after Cambridge, he goes back to, and he was hired by a Sir John Walsh. And so he becomes a tutor for this, this family. They, they have an estate and he, they have two young boys and, and Tyndale is hired as, as the tutor. He's a, the private chaplain for the family. He's the personal secretary to Sir John Walsh. And so he, he's in a, a more removed setting. And from this removed setting, he gives himself over to study the Greek New Testament and to consider the, the Reformation truths that he'd come to embrace. And so he, he's just growing and studying and learning. And he would also, he'd go re- regularly preach to locals at a, at a, a local congregation in a nearby town. And, and so as he's here at the, at the Walsh Estate, in that time, if you are a well-to-do family, had an estate, your, your dinner table would be a place for, for all the who's who of the town to come and, and gossip would travel around the dinner table. And so Tyndale would be at all of these dinners and so he would, time after time, you'd have the local clergy, these priests who were coming and Tyndale was, was amazed at how little they knew. So he's reading his Greek New Testament and he's talking to these priests and they have no idea what he's talking about because they don't know Greek. They, they don't even know Latin. They just say what they're supposed to say. And so, so there's this tension that, that continues to grow as Tyndale sees the state of the Roman church. It was the appalling biblical ignorance of the Roman church that Tyndale witnessed and so, so as he's sitting at these tables, there, there's one, one of the most memorable moments of Tyndale's life. Maybe you're familiar with this, but at one of these moments, there, there's this heated debate that ensues between one of the Catholic clergymen and this young Oxford graduate. And so, so they're, they're talking about the Pope and, and how you are to respect the Pope. And this, this priest, just, just infuriated with Tyndale, said, we'd be better off without God's law than without the Pope's law. And so he says, we'd be better off if we didn't have God's law, as long as we had the Pope's law. And to to which Tyndale responds most famously, he says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than you do. So I defy the Pope. And if, if God gives me enough years, I'm gonna make sure that the plow boy out in the field knows more of the Bible than you do. And that was that was his that was his, that was his watershed moment. That's what set his trajectory. And he was he was repeating something that Erasmus had had, had had written earlier that he had read. But it was here he wanted the plowable, he wanted the common person to know the Bible, to have access to the Bible in his own language. And so it is here at this dinner table of the Walshes that, that he recognized his life life's work was going to be going to be translating the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into the English language. And so that's what, that's what he sets out to do. And so with this new aim, he, he has connections with the Walshes. And, and so he uses some of their, their connections to try and get the, the approval of a bishop of London, who, a Bishop Tunstall, to, to oversee his translation. So if, remember, it, it's illegal for someone to translate the Bible into English. So he can't do it in anywhere in England unless there's an authority, a bishop or someone who will, uh, who will provide cover for him to do it underneath their protection. So so if the Bishop of London says, yeah, I, I, Tyndale's with me, the church won't come after him. So he can, he can enable him. This is what, what Prince Frederick does for Martin Luther, if you remember, in Germany. And so he goes to the Bishop of London, and, and he thinks it's going to work. The Bishop of London refuses him. Um, he was the one, one man that, that had the ability and the power to, to enable Tyndale to do it. And so in, Tyndale realizes, it's not, I can't do this in England. Because of what would be required with the printing and, and the, the circulation, it, it had to be done undercover. And so there in England, Tyndale realizes, I can't, I can't do it here. I have to leave my homeland to pursue my life's work. And so in 1524, at the age of 30, he leaves England and heads for Germany. And so at age 30, in the year 1524, he leaves England and he would never come back. He would never be back to his homeland. At age thirty, he leaves. 1524. He goes to a, a town in Germany called Cologne. And he sets out um, without the king's permission. So when he leaves England, the the king hasn't given him permission to translate into English. So everything he does, whether he's not in England or whether he's in England or not, anything he does as an English citizen is illegal and he would be a fugitive the rest of his life. So when he leaves, he knows I'm gonna be chased down if I'm found out. So it's he's he's undercover, he's having to, to be very careful about how he does what he does the rest of his life. And so they're in Cologne, he begins translating the New Testament into English. He had found a print shop. So, so you have these printers who they have to be willing to take on this illegal act- activity, but they know that there's, there's great uh, gain, value, uh, benefit to, to taking part in this illegal uh, endeavor. So, so the forbidden fruit is really desirable. So, if you tell people you can't have a Bible, well, people are going to really want the Bible if it's available. So, these printers, some are, are good but some just want to make money. So, he finds a printer there in Cologne, Germany, who's going to going, going to publish or going to print the New Testament. And so, there, this this print shop is is well known. So, there were there were many in Germany, uh, but but one of the workers at the print shop one night, the, this worker. Uh, who, again, was part of, part of what was going on there in the print shop. The worker who's, who's drunk one night is, is telling everyone about what's going on, about these two Englishmen who are, who are going to, they're working on the New Testament, and, and we're going to print it from our shop. And so that word, the, the drunk workman, spreads the word, and it, it, it makes its way up to, to an authority who then says, we, we're going to stop this print shop. They raid the print shop. Uh, fortunately, Tyndale was made aware of the raid, um, and he escaped with the work that he had done. He'd made it all the way through Matthew and part, part way through Mark. He takes all his translation work, gets on the Rhine River, and, and goes down to the town of Worms or Worms, another town in Germany. And so a, a close call, but he escaped. And there in Worms, he found again a printer willing to print the New Testament. And so he was working nonstop. He, he translates the New Testament, he completes it in 1526. And in 1526, Tyndale printed the first English translation of the New Testament. So he completes it, the the entire New Testament from the Greek into English. And and so he prints it and begins distributing it through this printer back into England. Okay, so so this was remarkable for the time that, that these are now in print and these are pocket, they're portable sizes. So that people they they're they're actually once they're printed. The, the international trade routes of England. So England has, has these trade routes all over. And so these, these uh, copies of the New Testament are hidden in bales of cotton. And so you have these cotton dealers who are in on the, in on the, the deal. And so they're shipping these bales of cotton with English New Testaments in them back to England. And so as, as soon as these copies are, are made available in England, they're bought, they are, they're eaten up and people are actually reading the Bible in their own language and understanding it for the first time. And so people can't get enough of them. And so this is a taste of, of, of the, the state of things there in England. And so this first translation, because of, how, because of the, the state of things, Tyndale's name isn't even on this first translation, and, and it's printed from a fake printing press. And so it's a fake printer, and, a, and the author is unnamed because it's illegal. So he had to maintain secrecy. But, but nonetheless, these, these first English translations are spreading throughout England, and so the church and the state, as, as these copies of the New Testament spread, uh, word travels and the authorities get, get wind of it and they begin trying to, to, to get as many of these copies as they can. So they're like, well, well we got to buy them all up and we got to burn them. We got to stop these English Bibles from being distributed and from spreading. And so many of them were purchased and, and burned by the church, which Tyndale couldn't believe. Yeah, he can burn my works, you can burn other things, but to burn the New Testament, he couldn't believe that these bishops would do this. In fact, there's one story about a, a, a bishop, a church official, who, who finds a distributor and says, hey, we want to buy all of them. The guy says, I know where to find them. And so he goes and he gives them all the copies of, of Tyndale's New Testament. And the guy thinks, uh, here's all the money he purchased, paid whatever price was, was asked for them. And then he burns them thinking, I've, I've won. Well, it turns out this distributor was connected to Tyndale and took all the money and gave it to Tyndale, who then could edit the first edition, make it better, and print the second edition. And so the Church of England actually uh, commissioned Tyndale to, to improve the Testament that it thought it was destroying. And so during all this, Tyndale, he's working on the New Testament. He's working on translations. He's also publishing these small tracts, or, or we, we'd call them books, Promoting these these core tenets of the Protestant Reformation of justification by faith alone, of of he he spends time correcting uh, terms like doing penance, and so the Catholic Church says you have to do do penance, and 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 uh, and Tyndale says, well, no, actually, the New Testament it's just the word repentance, so you don't have to do penance, you just have to repent, which is different than what they're teaching you, and so and here's the the many errors of the Catholic Church. So he's he's writing constantly against all that he sees that's wrong, that's contrary to what the New Testament, and the Scriptures are teaching. And so he continued to be sought by the Roman Catholic Church and by the King of England. And so from the city of Worms, he, he moved to the city of Antwerp where he'd continue updating and improving his New Testament. But also, and this is where his, just, his natural gifting comes into play, but at some point between leaving Cambridge and getting to Antwerp, he had learned Hebrew. He had learned Hebrew. He, if, if you could count on one hand the number of people in England that knew Hebrew at that time. No one knew it. There are a few but he had somewhere, no one knows where, but, but people speculate, it's probably in Germany, at some pl- somewhere in Germany, he had, he had learned Hebrew, had taught himself Hebrew, and had be- begun to become efficient enough that he started translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into English. And so Tyndale studied and learned, not only Greek, not only all the other languages, but Hebrew well enough to be able to begin translating the Old Testament into English. And so his intelligence... And his powerful ability to write is, is clear. And in fact, there's this worth noting that at some point in his life, the king, who's King Henry VIII, who's going to be the king for, for most of his life, the king recognizes, wait, I need Tyndale on my team. And so he sends a man named Stephen Vaughan to find Tyndale to try and get him back to England. Okay, so at this time, uh, Tyndale's f- to writing against some, some other well-known writers. And, and so his, his pen is very powerful, so the king wants him. And so the, the man, Stephen Vaughn, who is sympathetic to the, the Reformation, to, to Protestant cause, and so he, he offers Tyndale um, the, the ability to come back. The king wants you, come come back. And so Tyndale can't believe the offer. In fact, as, as Vaughn is recounting the conversation, he says that Tyndale has tears in his eyes as he's telling him, the king will offer you mercy and pardon if you'll come back. But, but Tyndale, listen, he makes one request Vaughn. So Vaughn says, hey, come back. King wants you. This is what Tyndale says. So this is Vaughn's recollection of the conversation. He says, this is, this is what Tyndale says in, in response to this, this offer. I assure you if it would stand with the King's most gracious pleasure to grant only a bare text of scripture, no commentary, no margin notes, just a bare text of scripture to be put forth among his people, be it the translation of whatever person he wants I shall immediately make faithful promise never to write any more, nor to abide two days in these parts after that happens. But I'll immediately come unto his realm and there most humbly submit myself at the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer whatever pain or torture, yet death, what death his grace will, so this be obtained. Until this time, I will uh, abide in the asperity of all chances whatsoever come and endure my life in as many pains as it is able to bear and suffer. So basically he says, okay, I'll come home just tell the king, I want the, the Bible to be translated in English, in the language of his people. I don't care who he has, doesn't. Just if he will agree to put the Bible, no notes, no anything, just the bare text before the people publish it, print it, make it available, I will come home and I'll never write another word. The king never responds. Never responds to it. But it's to this response, when when Vaughn is writing back to the king, telling about this, this interaction, He says to the king of Tyndale that he's always singing one note. Do you know what the one note that Tyndale sang no matter what? Get the Bible into the language of the people. That was his note. He was always singing it. And so here's chance at freedom, chance at going home. He says, I'm not going home unless the Bible is in the language of the people. That was his one note. And he's going to sing it until it came to pass. And like I said, the request was never granted. So Tyndale never did end up returning to England. And for whatever reason, maybe the king was offended. He quickly changed his mind about Tyndale and continued sending men to hunt for him and to capture him. He was still a fugitive that that was being sought after. And so in 1530, he had completed his translation of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books from Hebrew into English, and those began being printed and shipped back into England. And again, these translations are hugely impactful. Think about what we learn just in the book of Genesis alone. So the book of Genesis is now translated in English and people are are reading the creation accounts in in ways they can understand and and the the, the rest of the the books of the first five. In fact, uh, uh, Tyndale referred to Deuteronomy as the the greatest of all the books of Moses, which is is fascinating to think about. But here he's translated the, the first five books of the Bible, sending them back to England. And now, because of the work of Tyndale, the entire New Testament and the first five books of the Old Testament had been accurately translated from the original languages into common English in such a way that anyone could read and understand the Bible. And they, they were accessible, they, they were affordable. And so, as, as things, as time is going on, Tyndale was bringing the Bible to the plowboy. That's what he was doing. And so, in Antwerp, this is a city where, where he's, he's doing this publishing. He is still being pursued by the church, and he finds refuge in the house of of Thomas Points, uh, who is an influential figure later. But but there in Antwerp, he translates the Pentateuch. But he also made corrections and improvements of the fifteen twenty six New Testament translation. And so in, in fifteen thirty four, eight years after the first edition, he published what what one one biographer called the glory of his life's work which is the 1534 edition of the new testament so so that's that's the crowning that's one of the greatest books ever published in the english language maybe the greatest so it's a 1534 edition and all 6000 copies that were printed and sold out within a month it said he would publish a few more editions, but, but they were minimal changes. From 1526, the first edition, to 1534, that eight years, he was constantly revising. So he's learning Hebrew. So now he's, he's able to look at the New Testament and think, oh, well, this is what was meant. Oh, here's a better way to say this. And so there were some uh, 5,000 edits from 1526 to 1534. But 1534 was, was pretty much, it was set, and that was the New Testament in English. And so then after that, in, in 1535, in the city, there arrives a man from England named Henry Phillips. Phillips was, was from a very wealthy family. He had been given some money from his father. He, he had a debt, and so his dad gave him money to pay the debt. Henry Phillips, instead of doing what his father had asked him to do, his, he goes and he gambles away all of his father's money. And so his debt is now double. And so he's afraid to, to go back to his father with the news. And so he's in a, 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 a dire situation, and one Catholic church leader was aware of Phillips' was aware of Philip's plight and considered him the perfect person to pay to go find Tyndale. And so Phillips was offered a large sum of money to travel to Europe and locate Tyndale and bring him back. So he was a, a modern day Judas who for a little bit of money went after Tyndale. And so he arrives in Antwerp. He's an Englishman, remember? So, and he's from a wealthy family. He can... He can navigate the, all the connections there. He quickly makes the connections he needs with the English merchants there in Antwerp, and he, it's not hard for him to locate Tyndale. And so having established a, a relationship with Tyndale, my one thing that's said of Tyndale, he's working with some, some individuals there in Antwerp. In fact, points, the man who's staying with, warns him about Phillips, and Tyndale says, no, 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 he's fine. So he was too trusting, some would say, but, but so Phillips one evening after inviting Tyndale out to dinner or for a walk, they walk out of the, the, the house that, that Tyndale was staying at and there had been arranged for soldiers to be. It's a long walkway. And so uh, Tyndale lets uh, Phillips go first. Phillips says, no, 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 you first. So, t- so Tyndale walks down this little alleyway. There's soldiers at the end. Uh, Phillips points his hand. It's a, I mean, this is all in, in, in Fox's Book of the Martyr. He points his hand and sees the one. The soldiers capture Tyndale and arrest him. And so there is the arrest. The fugitive is captured. And after 12 years as a fugitive, Tyndale was at last apprehended and taken into custody. Now, thankfully, he, all this time after the first five books of the Old Testament are translated, he continued working on Old Testament translation. And, and when he was arrested, the house was ransacked. But thankfully, uh, someone there had, had taken all of his translation material and had, had saved it. Um, so it was it was continued on, and and his translations would be republished later on in in coming editions of the English Bible. But after his arrest, Tyndale was imprisoned in a castle near the town of Brussels, so just south of where he was. Um and so that's where he spent. I think it was five hundred days where he was spent there in imprisoned in, in that castle. In fact, the only surviving handwritten communication from Tyndale, was written during his final days in the castle. This is what he writes to, there's some unnamed officer in the castle, and this is what Tyndale writes as, as he's just waiting. He doesn't know what's gonna happen. He's waiting for his trial. He's arrested, but he's awaiting his trial, and here's what he writes. It's very Pauline. Listen to how he, to the request he makes. He says, I believe, most excellent sir, that you are not unacquainted with the decision reached concerning me, on which account I beseech your lordship, even by the Lord Jesus, that if I'm to pass the winter here, to urge upon the Lord commissary, if he will deign to send me from my goods in his keeping a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from cold in the head, being troubled with a continual uh, something which is aggravated in in this prison vault. A warmer coat also, for that which I have is very thin. Also cloth for repairing my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. The shirts also are worn out. He has a woolen shirt of mine, if he will please send it. I also have with him leggings of heavier cloth for overwear. He likewise has warmer nightcaps. So he's saying, hey, all my stuff, just, just send me a couple of these things. I also ask for leave to use a lamp in the evening for it's tiresome to sit alone in this dark. But above all, I beg and entreat your clemency earnestly to intercede with the Lord Commissary that he would deign to allow me the use of my Hebrew Bible, of my Hebrew grammar and of my Hebrew lexicon that I may employ my time with that study. Thus likewise, may you obtain what you most desire, saving that it further the salvation of your soul. But if before the end of the winter a different decision be reached concerning me, I shall be patient and submit to the will of God to the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ, my Lord, whose spirit may ever direct your heart, amen. And so, so here is his handwritten communication. I, I just, want, just want some clothes. I'm, I'm suffering here in the cold prison, castle. Bring me some clothes and, and bring me the Hebrew. So I, he clearly intended to finish his translation of the Old Testament, but he would never do that because after the 500 days of imprisonment, he was brought to trial by the Roman Catholic Church the trial resulted, not surprisingly, in his conviction. He was convicted as a heretic. He had broken many laws and had spoken out strongly against the Roman Catholic Church, and he was condemned. And so, so he was going to be killed as a heretic. And so the, the, the church side of, of this, this, this uh, proceedings was he was publicly excommunicated, humiliated by the church, who then hands him over to the state, to the, the crown, and then the civil authorities would kill William Tyndale. And so in October of 1536, on it thought to be October 6th of 1536, Tyndale emerges from the imprisonment, and was paraded down to the town center there in Antwerp, and there's a large crowd present, and there were was a, a it was like a gallows set up. And in in Antwerp, William Tyndale was killed by being hung. And then after he after his body was lifeless, his body was burned. So there was a bunch of of brush, and, and they put gunpowder, and they would burn his body after it was dead. And it was during this process, during, during the, these proceedings, that Tyndale uttered what are certainly his most famous words, where, where in this process he gazes into heavens and he cries forth in prayer, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. So, so that's his dying prayer, Lord, open the eyes of the king. And so there in 1536, his life ends, and less than one year later, the king of England, King Henry VIII, approved of the publication of an official English Bible. So just one year later... And remarkably, in 1538, not only does he approve the publication of an English Bible, but the king issues a decree that a copy of the Bible, both in English and Latin, should be placed in every church in England. So, so this is less than two years from the time that, that, he, that Tyndale is killed. In fact, you read stories of now people, that they have access to an English Bible, they go to their mass that's still being performed in Latin, and their heads are down the whole service because they can't get enough of their English Bible. So they're just reading and reading, and the, the priests are upset, no one's listening to them anymore. But, but, but the, the English translation of the Bible is, is made available throughout England by the decree of the king. Just two years after Tyndale prays, Lord, open the eyes of the king. And so the English translations then were the product of Tyndale's life work. And after his death, the stream of Bibles into England were like, one author says, a mighty river continually bearing new waters to the sea. And so as these printed English Bibles became accessible to the common man in England, Tyndale's plowman was at last reading, discussing, living, and proclaiming the truths of the Bible among his relatives, friends, and countrymen. And so that was the legacy of Tyndale. And the legacy continues today. And so many of us here, even with our our numerous English translations, they all have their singular origin in Tyndale's foundational work. And so whatever the publisher, English Standard or Christian Standard or New International or New American Standard, all these English publishers continue to stand upon the sturdy shoulders of Tyndale's pioneering efforts. And think about now the the international nature of English. It's an international language. And so the ongoing influence of William Tyndale extends to the farthest corners of the world even today. And so as his most well-known biography begins, the first words of the introduction, William Tyndale gave us our English Bibles. And so we owe a debt of gratitude to William Tyndale. It wasn't King James, it wasn't the committee in 1611 and the authorized version. In fact, if you look at the authorized version that, that the king published in, in 1611, nine-tenths of the authorized, ver, authorized version is taken verbatim from Tyndale's New Testament. And then half of the Old Testament, I mean, he, only, he only got through half of it, but half of the Old Testament that the authorized version uses is, nine-tenths of that is verbatim from Tyndale. And so the, the King James Version that we still read today, that was just read here on Christmas Eve, that was the product of William Tyndale. So his legacy continues. And so I just, I know we're, we're running out of time. I just have a few points of, of lessons or, or of application for us. And I think they, they're probably evident as I've been going, but, but first God's word is precious. That would be the first thing. God's word is precious. And so this will be an effective sermon if this afternoon or tomorrow morning or at any point, Over the rest of your life, you wake up one morning and think, I'm going to read God's word this morning because I can. Don't take it for granted. God's word is precious and and we have it. We have it translated in our very hands from the original Hebrew and Greek. That's not always been the case. And so God's word is precious. The, The other next point of application, God's word is powerful. God's word is powerful. The the, the English Protestant Reformation was a powerful movement that was necessary to correct the the problems, the issues of the Roman Catholic Church. And it was God's word that did it. It just had to be unleashed. So Luther unleashes it, Tyndale unleashes it, Zwingli unleashes it. These reformers, all they're doing is saying, we want to read the Bible. We want the people to know the Bible. And God's word is what creates the change. And through this powerful revelation of God's word, the gospel is made manifest. And your justification by faith alone is is made a championing cry. And so God's word is precious, it's powerful. Another thing, and this is, I, I, I don't think, let me just mention, as you think about this, I thought about this this week, there are still places in our world where they don't have the Bible in their language. And so one of the benefits we have as a Southern Baptist church is we're part of the International International Mission Board where we have missionaries like like the Franks who are in Poland and are ministering where it's a a, a Western city that still needs gospel ministry. But we have people who who are in the far reaches of the world who are working to translate the Bible. So they're learning languages that have never had the Bible in their language before. And so we ought to pray for God's word to be translated. We ought to support the translation work of God's word because God's word is powerful. Second to last thing, God's gifts are purposeful. So, so I won't, I know I won't be, you probably won't be remembered for something as seemingly important as William Tyndale, right? but you're not William Tyndale. God didn't create you to know fluently eight languages. He didn't give you the mind that he gave Tyndale, but he made you as you are. He didn't make you anyone else. He made you and he's purposely created you the way you are, whatever it is. God has gifted you to serve him. And so my prayer for all of us, but, but I thought especially of, of the younger people, I thought about my kids. And I would, I would, I would pray that, that all of our young people would dream big dreams for God, but would consider your life in light of God's plan and God's work, not for yourself, Think about what God, how God could use you. How has God gifted you? If you make an influence on for your name, it's, gonna, it's, it's fleeting. But if you're used by God for his purposes, it will last forever. And so God's gifts are purposeful. Recognize who God has made you to be and then serve him and, and spend your life for his purposes. The last thing I'll say, and then we're gonna, we're gonna sing one song in response. Um, but the last thing I'll just say is, is the role of Christian biography in the life of Christian. I mean, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, so the local church is a great place for that. But, but also, we have accounts of faithful men and women who have gone before us, who have lived lives of faithfulness. And so I would just encourage you, maybe for 2021, a goal would be for you to pick a biography of a Christian. There are lots of them. Pick one and, and, and commit to reading it because I can promise you, you're gonna be encouraged as you read about God's faithfulness in the lives of others and you'll see your life in, in light of his faithfulness in the past. And so I would encourage you, the role of Christian biography in in, in my life and I think in the life of, of the church is, is valuable. And so God's word is precious. God's word is powerful. His gifts are purposeful and there's a place for Christian biography. Um, so, so I'll ask Andrew to come up and we'll, we'll sing, but let me pray as we close and we'll stand and we'll be dismissed with a great Reformation hymn uh, this morning, but let me pray.